this afternoon's lecture uh, is going to be a wonderful example of why this lecture series is so important as we hear from uh, Professor Nolan McCarty on a topic that I suspect is one of the reasons why we are getting such good attendance this afternoon. Uh, this is of interest, I think, to literally everyone, uh, the polarization of American politics. Uh, the next lecture in the series is going to be held on March 24th. Uh, it will be given by Professor of Molecular Biology, uh, Ginger Zakian. Uh, and now I'm going to ask uh, Nolan's colleague in the Woodrow Wilson School, Chris Paxson, uh, the Dean of the Wilson School, if she would introduce her colleague. Chris. Thanks very much, Shirley. Um, I am very pleased to introduce my colleague, Nolan McCarty. He is the Susan Dodd Brown Professor of Politics and Public Affairs. Uh, he is also the Associate Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, so I get to benefit from his good advice and, and good humor on many occasions. And he was Acting Dean at the Woodrow Wilson School in 2007-08. He's a political scientist. He works on US politics, democratic political institutions, and political game theory. He has two uh, fairly recent books, uh, one on political game theory uh, published in 2006, and more recently a book that is uh, closely related to the topic that he's going to talk about today on polarized America, the dance of uh, ideology and unequal riches, which is with Keith Poole and Howard Rose Rosenthal. And he has numerous other articles uh, on this topic. Uh, in 2010, he was elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, just a few words before um, I, I turn it over to Nolan. As Shirley said, this topic couldn't be more timely. I think the reason why I'm also really looking forward to it is, you know, if you look, if you go to talk shows or the blogosphere or, or op-ed pieces, you see so much on political polarization these days. And my impression anyway is that a lot of this talk happens in a fact-free zone. Um, and. It, it's really nice to hear from somebody for whom evidence and data, shockingly, are very important. And uh, so, you know, Nolan's work really examines the sources and consequences of polarization in a very careful, thoughtful, and smart manner. So I expect we'll all enjoy his talk. So thanks, Nolan. Before I begin, I'd like to thank President Tillman for the honor of being asked to participate in this series that's included so many of my distinguished colleagues over the years. Um, I think it's fair to say, uh, if we, I think it's fair that if one were to ask any serious observer for a one-word description of the American political scene, the word polarization might be near the list, if not number one, or at least two or three. Perhaps it would lose to words like dysfunctional or bizarre, but it would still be up there uh, near the top. Um, just to give you some sense of how pervasive the phenomenon is, the last two of our presidents have come to Washington vowing to bridge partisan divides. We all recall that George Bush proclaimed that he was a uniter, not a divider. Candidate Obama assured us that we worship an awesome God in the blue states and we don't like federal agents poking around our libraries in the red states we coach Little League in the blue states and have gay friends in the red states. 
Yet both men have ended up as being among the most polarizing figures ever to serve in the Oval Office. When George W. Bush left office, the difference in approval ratings between those of Republican voters and Democratic voters was 61%. It would have been higher, it, it would have been higher except for the fact that Republican voters finally deserted him before he left office and it reached as high as 80%. Currently, there's a 72 percentage point partisan gap in the approval of President Obama. Richard Nixon had a higher rating among Democrats upon impeachment and resignation than Obama has currently among Republicans or Bush had among Democrats. When Bush left office, 7 percent of Democrats approved of his performance. The same percentage believed that Elvis Presley was still alive. <laughs> and this is really old now because he would be 75 years old now. There are many other signs of polarization manifest this year. Of course, as we all know, 2010 was the year of the Tea Party, an avowedly ideological movement committed to shrink the government and return the country to constitutional principles. Throughout the primary system, they took aim at rhinos, Republicans in name only. In Utah, for example, they ousted Robert Bennett for the reason of being only as conservative as the average Republican. Uh, and they uh, defeated him in a, primary, uh, in a primary election. This is not a new phenomenon. In recent years, groups from the left have targeted moderate Democrats. While the last two years in Congress were productive legislatively, lots of important pieces of legislation passed, almost no Republican House members supported any of the legislative enactments of the last two years. Uh, the acts such as the Dodd-Frank bill, the health care uh, reform bill, uh, the stimulus package passed only because enough concessions were made to get the support of the near extinct moderate Republicans in the Senate. Uh, so polarization has become quite pervasive. Against this backdrop, uh, there's become a subgenre of American political analysis, which I'll call polarization punditry. Uh, it has become hard to spend any time watching CNN, Fox, or MSNBC reading the opinion sections of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal without being proffered an explanation for why American politics is polarized and why that is bad. Occasionally people will say it's good, but they usually say it's bad. Uh, I myself have engaged in a bit of polarization punditry. I've written a few op-eds and I blogged for a little while until I learned that being a good blogger meant that I had to read other people's blogs, something that I became loath to do. Uh, but as the Dean mentioned, as Dean Paxson mentioned, my day job is to use the tools of social science uh, to come to deeper understandings of America's political divide and its consequences. Um, it would be more than a little depressing, however, if my more sophisticated analyses simply replicated what is on the opinion pages and the blogs. But I hope to persuade you that the story may be quite a bit different from what you've read in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Daily Coast, and Red State. So I've kind of organized my remarks around what I'll call the facts and fictions of the polarization of American politics. Okay. So let me start with a, uh, a couple possible, they could be facts, could be fictions. I'll, I'll let you decide when I'm, when I'm done speaking. But here are a couple of things that you'll hear uh, on the blogs and on CNN. The first is that there's nothing new about polarized politics, okay? The second, obviously they both can't be true, is that there's not a dime's worth of difference between uh, the political parties. Uh, 
So obviously they can't both be facts, but they could both be fictions, uh, which I'll argue that they are. Uh, so this is a figure uh, which plots a measure of polarization devised by me and two of my collaborators, Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal. It's based on the conservatism of each member of Congress, uh, estimated on their roll call voting record, uh, and this plot goes back to the late 1870s or the end of Reconstruction. While I won't go into the details of the statistical procedure, let me simply note that this measure uses information on voting coalitions in Congress. Uh, conservatives are those people who vote with conservatives, occasionally with moderates, and never with liberals. Liberals are the opposite, and moderates equally frequently vote with both liberals and conservatives. Of course, it sounds circular, but believe me, if you keep stirring, it all converges, and we get very nice estimates of the positions of members of Congress. Then the polarization measure we compile is simply the average difference between the parties on these conservatism scales. Clearly this figure, uh, which we plot for both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, is not consistent with either of the previous statements. Thus, I think they're both fictions. The cross-party differences in conservatism are now at an all-time high, breaking records that were set in Reconstruction, where the party divisions reflected the cleavages formed in a civil war. No wonder the journalist Ron Brownstein has entitled his book on contemporary polarization, The Second Civil War, uh, because the partisan differences are uh, at least as large as they were at the end of Reconstruction. I gave this talk at the University of Georgia a couple weeks ago where I had to say it was the end of the Northern occupation. But now I'm back in Princeton, I can call it, I can call it what it is. It's also clear from the figure that polarization has not always been high. There was a period roughly from the late 1920s to the mid-1970s where polarization was fairly low and stable. This was a period where each party had large moderate blocks. Moreover, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats actually roamed the earth, uh, but no more. Uh, some might question whether aggregate measures devised by wonky political scientists are really picking up anything important. So let me drill down a little bit to illustrate the differences in congressional voting between now uh, and the mid-1960s during this period in which polarization was low. First consider the issue of health care. Uh, this is a, a bar plot showing the votes on the bill in the House of Representatives that created Medicare in 1965. Despite cries then of socialized medicine, a majority of Republican House members voted for the bill and many Democrats voted against. Fast forward to 2010. Perhaps the cries of socialized medicine are more salient now because not a single House Republican voted for the health care uh, reform bill. Okay. A few Democrats voted against, but, but not that many. Uh, it's perhaps not just health care. Let me move to uh, equal uh, opportunity in employment. This is a vote that was taken in 1965 to extend the authority of the Equal Opportunity Commission, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It had overwhelming Republican support. Uh, almost all the Republicans uh, voted uh, in favor of it. Uh, although it was killed in the Senate by conservative Democrats, despite the fact that it was championed by the moderate to liberal Republican Jacob Javits. But moving to 2009, the first act of Congress uh, in the new administration uh, was to pass the so-called Lilly Ledbetter Law, which extended the statute of limitations for employment discrimination lawsuits. 
It's hard to see, but that's only three Republicans uh, down there voting in favor and only three Democrats voting no. So equal opportunity uh, in employment has become a much more partisan issue. Climate and the environment. Clean Air Act of 1963, it's the first Clean Air Act, it's not the big Clean Air Act. Uh, but again, uh, fairly substantial Republican support. When cap and trade was voted on uh, uh, back in the summer, uh, almost no Republican support. So almost all of these issues, things have become much more polarized. Financial reform. There was an attempt in 1966 to regulate bank mergers. Unanimous support among Republicans. The Dodd-Frank bill, unanimous opposition among Republicans. I would have a comparison on immigration reform. This is the Immigration Naturalization Act of 1965. But there's so little Republican support uh, for comprehensive uh, immigration reform uh, that the bill has not come to a vote, so I don't have one to compare with. So on issue after issue, the patterns have become more partisan and more, and more polarized. Consider another uh, set of potential facts and fictions. The first is the argument that polarization in American politics primarily reflects differences on cultural and wedge issues, such as abortion, guns, uh, and homosexuality. A related point, uh, and here's a nice quote from Thomas Frank, who wrote an influential book a few years back on polarization. So he's one of the polarization pundits. He's now the token uh, progressive at the Wall Street Journal editorial page. But he said that one of the things that is certain, that if we want to unravel the mystery of the great divide, by which he means polarization, we know for sure the answer is not class, where he means income and economic status. We can rule that uncomfortable subject out from the very start. So I've been very interested in examining these claims uh, over time, as has my colleague uh, in the Wilson School, Larry Bartels. As I've already shown you, there's evidence against the first statement, because I showed you on lots of issues, not just abortion, guns, and homosexuality, the partisan divides uh, have become much, much bigger. So from health care to employment law to environment, they've all polarized in several ways. I might have shown you uh, votes on gay rights and abortion, but it turns out Congress doesn't vote on these issues very often. Uh, so I can't show it to you. And moreover, the aggregate index that I showed you has very few of those votes. So these issues are not driving uh, these differences. As for class, I say it's a little too early to dismiss it. Uh, consider the following plot, which, measure, which plots our polarization measure for the House of Representatives against a measure of family income inequality called the Gini Index. If all incomes were the same, the Gini Index would be zero. When all incomes uh, are unequal, when, when incomes become more equal, the Gini Index rises. When Bill Gates has every last cent, the, in, cent, the index will equal one. Okay, so it's a measure of income inequality. Note that the period of stable and low income inequality corresponds very closely to the period of low polarization. It seems that middle-of-the-road politics seems to have gone hand-in-hand -hand with middle-class uh, economics uh, through much of the middle of the 20th century. Using a somewhat different measure of income inequality, the income share going to the top 1% of the income distribution, we can see that the pattern holds at least as far back as the creation of the income tax in 1913. We get this, these data from the income tax, so we can't go back further. Again, the correlation is, is quite high. 
Periods of high income inequality tend to be periods of high partisan polarization. Periods of low income inequality tend to be low periods of partisan polarization. There is an appearance in these data of polarization leading income inequality somewhat, indicating the strong politics, the strong possibility that politics and therefore policy uh, may feed in uh, to income inequality, a, a point I hope to return to uh, in a second. Finally, uh, consistent with my view that there's a major economic component to political polarization, consider this graph, which describes the vote behavior of voters across different income groups. So here I've plotted the ratio of support for Republicans among the highest income quintile, the top 20% of the income distribution, and divided it by the support for Republicans in the lowest income quintile, the bottom 20%. Uh, so when this ratio is larger, there's a bigger divergence in the partisan preferences across income groups. Note that in the 1950s and 1960s, this low period of polarization, high and low income voters were equally Republican. The ratio is about one. Uh, now the ratio for the previous election, despite what you might have read, uh, is at an all-time high. According to the American National Election Study, uh, the top income quintile was three times is Republican and his partisan identification is lowest income quintile. Uh, so there's become a major uh, difference in the identification with the two parties uh, and uh, also with presidential voting. Note that presidential voting is a little bit less pronounced because President Obama did get uh, significant support among uh, some Republicans, but they have not completely departed the Republican Party uh, as we witnessed three weeks ago. So this suggests that the parties have more or less moved in accord with the interests of high and low income voters. In my book with Rosenthal and Poole, we argue that income inequality causes polarization and that polarization causes income inequality. Consistent with the previous slide, income inequality changes the economic position of the constituent bases of the two parties. Income inequality increases the income gap between Republican and Democratic voters. And as party positions begin to reflect these changes, these effects are reinforced as voters become more likely to realign themselves along income lines. But secondly, and also importantly, polarization also leads to income inequality. Because the features of American political systems, such as the filibuster and the presidential veto, large legislative coalitions are necessary for policymaking in the US. Polarization of legislators and political elites make these coalitions hard to form. Although this increases the stability of policy, uh, polarization retards government responses to pressing social and economic problems. This leads to deterioration of certain types of non-index social benefits, uh, such as the minimum wage and others. Moving on. Uh, these are commonly heard in the blogosphere. Red states are poor. Blue states are rich, therefore low-income voters must, must vote Republican. I've kind of showed you that's not true already, but I want to give the point a benefit of a doubt and prove, uh, prove it's false again. The second point, uh, and this was a point originally made by Thomas Frank, the conservative Christian voters uh, vote against their economic self-interest. The first statement is an example of what's known in statistics as the ecological fallacy. It's an inference about individual behavior derived from aggregate statistics. 
Red states vote Republican, red states are poor, ergo the poor must vote Republican. It's flawed logic, and the inference happens to not be true. So here's the explanation. In this figure, I've computed the percentage of Republicans in both the top quintile, that's the, the vertical axis, uh, and the bottom quintile, that's the lower axis. So when I plot these, any state for which uh, their designation appears above the line, it means that the high-income voters are more Republican than the low-income voters. You can see that that's essentially true for almost every state, except for perhaps Massachusetts and Utah, and that's because everyone's a Republican in Utah and everyone's a Democrat in Massachusetts. <laughs> but for every other state, uh, it, it lies above the line. High-income voters are more uh, Republican than low-income voters. But note something important. In the red states, those states that voted Republican in the 2004 election, they're further from the line than the blue states. This means that it's in those red conservative states where the income gap in voting is the largest. So red states aren't red because they're low-income voters vote Republican. It's because their high-income voters are really, really Republican. Uh, high-income Southern voters have become the backbone of the Republican Party. On the second point, the fiction seems to have some lags because there's both a tendency to underestimate the economic status of conservative Christians. Uh, they're not as uh, poor and low income as we believe. Uh, they actually are very reflective of the income distribution. And we tend to overestimate how politically unified they are. This figure shows that while conservative Christians are more Republican than others holding income fixed, so each of these points in the graph reflects different income groups, the gap between the support of born-again or evangelical Christians for the Republican Party actually widens as income increases. So there's a small gap between, uh, between born-again and other whites for low incomes and a very large gap for high incomes. Again, uh, high-income conservative Christians are uh, basically the most Republican subgroup uh, in the country. Two more uh, facts or fiction. The first, polarization is a consequence of the Southern realignment. Uh, the fact that the uh, South went from being a Democratic one-party stronghold with many moderate and conservative Democrats in Congress uh, to a bipartisan uh, system with uh, liberal uh, representatives of primarily African-American districts and white conservative Republicans replacing those Democratic moderates. Second, that race and ethnicity is an important factor in polarization. This is a misdirection. These are actually partially true, uh, but let me emphasize that they're only partially true. First, the polarization patterns that I showed you are almost identical if Southern representatives are completely omitted from my calculations. It's true that the realignment of Southern politics following the Civil and Voting Rights Acts of 1964 and 1965 had a direct impact on polarization. Moderate and conservative representatives were replaced either by African Americans or conservative Republicans. But this is only half the story. 
because it struggles to explain what happened to the moderate and liberal Republicans, i.e. those that supported Medicare, i.e. those strengthening the Equal Opportunity uh, Employment Commission, those in favor of regulating emissions and stopping bank mergers. To use proper names, the Southern Realignment story can't explain what happened to Jacob Javits, Edward Brooke, and John Chafee. So to quantify these effects, the figure here uh, calculates trends in polarization looking only at non-Southern representatives in Congress. Not surprisingly, the amplitude of the cycle is dampened somewhat, uh, but the polarization trends are all qualitatively the same. Polarization of American politics is not simply a regional uh, phenomenon. Uh, second uh, is a point I've already made uh, with other data, so I won't show it again. Uh, Southern politics is the most class-based uh, part of the country. So in terms of polarization, the fact that uh, high-income and low-income voters in the South uh, adhere to political parties quite differently is a major contribution uh, to polarization uh, in and of itself. And finally, the question of whether racial attitudes, uh, racial and race and ethnicity are an important factor in polarization. There's a major debate, not just among uh, polarization pundits, but even among political scientists, about whether the American party system is primarily based on racial attitudes or preferences over economic distribution. One of the reasons this debate has made so little headway is that the issues of race and redistribution are so commingled on account of the fact that African Americans and Latinos are often the primary beneficiary of redistributive policies. Thus, racial conservatism and economic conservatisms provide many of the same policy prescriptions as do, does uh, racial uh, and economic progressivism. Of course, this is not to say that all economic conservatives are racist. It's simply the recognition of the fact that coalitions often form among those who believe the same things, albeit for different reasons. This has had another unfortunate effect on polarization in the United States, the tendency to see racial motives behind every political dispute. Uh, so I'm very troubled when the polarization pundits often attribute racial animus, for example, to Tea Party activists based solely on inferences based on the Tea Party's activist preferences for the size of government, uh, and equally concerned when conservatives criticize liberals as playing uh, race and ethnic cards uh, to get the policy preferences they want. Another way in which race and ethnicity plays into polarization, at least partially, uh, is that immigration uh, to the United States over time has been associated with high levels of political polarization. So this plot measures the percentage of the population of the United States that is foreign-born in each of the censuses since the 1880s, plotted against the measure of polarization in the House. Again, we see that periods of high migration, high percentages of foreign-born, tend to be periods in which polarization is high, periods in which there are low percentages of foreign-born, such as the period between the 1920s and the 1960s, when immigration was essentially shut down. We see low polarization uh, and increased polarization when immigration returns. So immigration, because it has effects on the distribution, uh, effects on the distribution of income, uh, has often been associated uh, with high polarization. But it has another direct effect. As we can imagine, immigrants 
tend to enter the United States at the bottom of our income distribution and cannot vote until uh, naturalized and then vote at very low rates after that. So one of the things that immigration has done is it has skewed the electorate towards higher income residents and perhaps dampening the support for political redistribution. So let me move on to the area which I think polarization pundits are the most active. I think in part as a coping mechanism, many polarization pundits are prone to latch on to electoral reform schemes uh, as ways to mitigate and eliminate polarization. There are arguments that if we just change this rule or that rule, we can bring politicians back to the sensible center. They will become cooperative statesmen rather than partisan warriors. But were it only true? So here are some of the arguments uh, that uh, polarization pundits have made, and some political scientists do, but uh, we can't all get it right. Um, the first is that gerrymandered congressional districts are a key source of polarization. Okay, we, hear, we hear this a lot. The second, that partisan primaries are a key source of, polar, are a key source of polarization. The fact that Republicans can only vote in Republican primaries and Democrats can only vote in Democratic primaries exacerbates polarization because moderates cannot get nominated. And finally, the argument that if we can get the money out of politics, it will reduce uh, polarization. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I think all of these are fiction. Let me turn to first the argument about gerrymandering. I think the most commonly embraced political form is to eliminate the political influence over the districting process because it's widely believed that gerrymandering creates safe districts and safe districts promote legislative extremism. Unfortunately, in my view, this argument is neither coherent nor consistent with the facts. Students of legislative districting have classified two types of politically motivated gerrymandering. The first is the partisan gerrymander. In such a gerrymander, the dominant party packs its opponents into as few districts as possible and then spreads uh, the voters of the other party, then spreads its own voters over as many districts as possible in order to maximize its seat share. But under this system, perversely, it is the weaker party that gets the safe seats. The dominant party has had more competitive seats, but they did this to win more seats uh, in expectation. Just as a real life example of this phenomenon, uh, the much ballyhooed uh, redistricting in Texas uh, in 2006 almost cost Tom DeLay his seat because he gave up too many of his voters uh, to other districts to help elect more Republicans. That's the nature of partisan gerrymanders. It's hard to see that they create polarization because they create lots of uncertainty uh, in the seats among the dominant party. The second form of gerrymander is the incumbent protection gerrymander. This is where districts are drawn to make districts safe for the current incumbents. Of course, this might lead to increased polarization if safe seats increase legislative extremism. But note that the incumbent protection gerrymander is a bipartisan gerrymander. So how is it that parties can agree over little else, but they're willing to give up the opportunity to win seats to the other side? Uh, so I think uh, the theory behind the gerrymandering story just isn't there. So let me turn to the evidence. 
The gerrymandering hypothesis actually predicts a particular form of polarization. It's what I'll call a sorting effect, meaning that what gerrymandering does is it produces lots of very safe Republican districts and lots of very safe Democratic districts. So Republicans represent all the safe Republican districts, Democrats represent all the safe Democratic districts, and that leads to polarization. There's an alternative form of polarization uh, where Democrats and Republicans represent very similar districts in very different ways. Um, so let me just give you kind of a hypothetical schematic of these two different types of polarization. The first figure is this hypothetical sorting outcome where this is the conservatism of the district and here's the uh, conservatism of the member. Sorting comes about because all the Republicans are representing the conservative districts, all the Democrats are representing the liberal districts. This is the pattern that gerrymandering is supposed to produce. There's another form of polarization which we'll call divergence, meaning that Republicans represent conservative and some liberal districts. Democrats represent liberal and some conservative districts. But in the districts where they overlap, they're divergent. Republicans are much more conservative than Democrats representing otherwise identical districts. So the key to understanding why the gerrymandering hypothesis isn't true is to note that most of the polarization in American politics, at least among the House of Representatives, is of the divergence type. It's the fact that there's a big gap between Republicans and Democrats in otherwise similar districts. So here I've plotted the Bush vote share in 2004 against this nominate score, this measure of conservatism by each of the members. And note, in a district that gave George Bush 50% of the vote, the difference between a Democrat representing those di districts is quite a bit different from the way that Republicans represent those now you might say, well, there's some sorting because there are a bunch of Democrats who are representing extremely liberal Democratic districts. But almost all of those are urban and minority districts that would be created under any type of districting scheme. They're not manipulated for partisan, they're not manipulated for partisan purposes. So for the most part, polarization is a phenomenon of within a particular district, Democrats and Republicans behave differently. Um, so to understand, to further explore whether uh, gerrymandering can produce polarization, uh, my co-authors and I did a number of simulations about how large the polarization might expect it to be other, under different methods of redistricting. So we fired up the computers, uh, did a bunch of simulations of nonpartisan neutral uh, districting procedures to see what polarization might look like under these methods. Each of these curves represents the distribution across all the simulations. Uh, the first set of simulations is just random districting, just throwing voters into 435 districts at randomly, taking some voters from Marin County, California, and putting them with voters in Dallas, Texas, and Princeton, New Jersey, and creating districts. And you can see we still get a very high level of polarization. But that's to be expected. That's just the divergence effect. We can start adding back the Constitution, start randomly putting voters within states. So here's what happens when you can combine voters from San Diego County and Marin County in California with the Rio Grande Valley and Dallas and Texas. 
uh, in Trenton and Princeton. And New oh, actually, we are in the same district, sorry. You can see that the gap between the predicted level of polarization and the actual level, which is the solid line, is even smaller. When I require the computers to make districts compact, meaning that they have to touch each other geographically, the districts, the difference between polarization that we observe and that we simulate is exceedingly small. And if we go one step further and say we want districts that are actually representative of the ideological and partisan viewpoints uh, within the states, we don't want districts that are just simply uh, mirror images of the states which they come from, uh, the effects go to zero. And in many of our simulations, we produce levels of polarization bigger than the actual uh, value. So, so gerrymandering is not an important part of the story. Let me turn to this issue of primary electoral systems. So here I'll need to give you a little bit of terminology to understand the arguments. There are various ways in which states can choose to nominate uh, congressional and state legislative candidates. They can choose a pure closed system in which voters who are registered members of a party can participate in its primary but nobody else. According to the polarization pundits, this is the bad system because what chance do moderates have to get nominated when only partisans can participate in this election? The polarization pundits like things better as it moves to semi-closed, where some independents are allowed to participate, semi-open, where more independents are allowed to more freely participate. But what they really like are pure open systems where anybody can participate and their choice is private, or even nonpartisan uh, primary systems. So, with some new data uh, that I've been able to uh, collect on polarization within state legislatures, I'm able to test uh, this claim. So this is some new data that I've collected with a uh, colleague of mine at the University of Chicago, Boris Shore, that we've compiled uh, on state legislatures. It essentially can be interpreted essentially the same way as our national measure. Uh, this is the conservatism of Democrats are the blue bars. Uh, the red bars represent the range of conservatism among Republicans. The black bar down the middle is the median member of each uh, party caucus. If you want a good sense as to why California is about to fall into the Pacific Ocean, uh, note that California down here is the state with the biggest partisan gap between uh, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, in fact, this is a fact that's not gone, un gone unnoticed. Uh, this actually happens to be uh, Governor Schwarzenegger of California holding up our chart, pointing to California being the most polarized uh, state in the country. Of course, the problem is that in this press conference, he was lobbying for an initiative to have open primaries. So it was clear that the governor didn't read the entire paper. Uh, so let me just give you a, a flavor uh, a flavor of these data. This plots for each year from the 1990s to the current period, uh, the average conservatism of Republicans, the average conservatism of Democrats is a function of the type of primary system. The pure closed primary system, semi-open, semi-closed, pure open and nonpartisan. Ignore nonpartisan. Currently, the only state with nonpartisan primaries is Louisiana. Uh, so the reason why they're not very polarized is because it's Louisiana, and Louisiana is just not very polarized. It has nothing to do with the electoral system. 
But no, there is almost no difference, systematic difference, between purely closed partisan systems and completely open systems where independents can participate freely. In fact, the semi-closed system is actually uh, more polarized than the pure closed system, uh, even though independents uh, can participate. Uh, so primary elections do not seem to be an important part of the polarization story. Because I'm running short on time, I will not go into detail about why I believe in the non-importance of campaign finance reform. But let me leave you with a little bit of uh, unsophisticated historical evidence about the non-importance of election laws. Remember our original graph where we had very low polarization in the middle of the 20th century. Well, also in the middle of the 20th century, before this red light in 1976, we had poorly regulated campaign finance laws. We had almost, we had almost none. Almost every state uh, before the McGovern Commission used some closed partisan form of primaries. And there was extreme gerrymandering. In fact, before the Supreme Court uh, intervened uh, in Baker versus Carr, districts didn't even have to be the same size. So the opportunity to manipulate district boundaries for partisan and other purposes was extreme. Yet we had, very, we had very low polarization during this period, even though we have kind of normatively suspect electoral institutions. So clearly low polarization coexisted very nicely with closed primaries, extreme gerrymandering, and unregulated campaign finance. So let me turn to the question of, well, if we can't reform polarization away, is it likely to end on its own? I cannot say that I'm confident that it will. Although polarization was declining a bit before the Depression and World War II, it's fairly clear that the big electoral and economic shifts triggered by these events helped lock in the combination of political and economic moderation. While undoubtedly traumatic, the financial crisis and the Great Recession did not produce such significant shifts. Economically, the distribution of income wasn't changed very substantially. Uh, if anything, income inequality has grown since the crisis. Uh, and as we all well know, the electoral shifts were small and transient. Um, some have pointed to recent uh, political volatility uh, as perhaps a harbinger that things might change. We know that the Democrats picked up a very large number of seats in 2006 and 2008, and the Republicans picked up a very large percentage of seats in 2010. Uh, so here's just a plot of the Republican seat swings in the House. Positive numbers are where the Republicans gain. Negative numbers are where the Republicans have lost. Note that there's nothing particularly remarkable about the last three election cycles. In fact, the 2010 election simply restored the situation of 2002 and 2003. I've also done a little bit of polarization forecasting for the next term. Somewhat like the weatherman in Los Angeles who can be confident that it'll be 70 degrees and sunny tomorrow, uh, I'm confident that polarization will go up. Um, so these are, these are the predictions, so the dots are the predictions for the next term. But note that it's not only because of the Tea Party Republicans, but because this was an especially hard election on Democratic moderates. In fact, the Democrats have been moderating over the last two elections, but the uh, outcomes of the first Tuesday in November basically wiped out those gains, and the Democratic uh, Party will be 
considerably more liberal because it's, uh, many of its moderate members will be leaving office. So the persistence of polarization leads me to the following question. That is, what is normal? Is it moderate America or is it polarized America? So, is this nicely, not quite Princeton orange shaded area, uh, the normal that somehow uh, through some perversion of our political process uh, we've lost? Or is this the norm? Polarized America. I've concluded that polarized America is the normal America. We're a big diverse country. We have a capitalist system that's going to spread its rewards unevenly. And it's essentially hard to imagine how these differences uh, would not be reflected somehow in our political debates. Uh, and it seems that the middle, of the, 20, the middle of the 20th century, the aftermath of two of the most uh, uh, significant events of the 20th century, as well as uh, the issue of race kind of cutting across political parties in a way that we wouldn't uh, tolerate today, is not likely to be uh, uh, restored. So let me conclude with how I've learned to stop worrying and I won't say love polarization, that would be too much, uh, but to tolerate polarization. First of all, it doesn't seem to be lessening anytime soon, and, and I like to think of myself as an optimist, and so I can't spend a lot of mental energy worrying about something that I can't control or I can't come up uh, with any solutions for. Uh, and, you know, as I've tried to point out, there's very little evidence that we can reform it away. I would actually point out in my attempt to be optimistic that uh, it does have some side benefits, so it would be unfair not to point out that it could have an upside. As Barry Goldwater might have said, polarization offers a choice, not an echo. Without clear choices offered by competing candidates, voters really can have little control over the direction of public policy. So it's not clear if we could put the genie back in the bottle. We'd want to go all the way back uh, to kind of a boring, moderate politics. We need to have uh, choices, uh, not echoes. Polarization may also increase uh, partisan accountability. If policy moves too far left, voters know who to blame. If it moves too far right, uh, they know who to blame. Of course, whether they do this effectively is another story. Finally, and I think importantly, polarization brings a much greater diversity of viewpoints uh, to Congress. We don't want to have manufactured consensus. Uh, we want those uh, diversity of viewpoints to be reflected in our uh, in our debates. However, I don't think we should let polarization, even with these benefits, get in the way of good governance. Uh, so to quote a good Princetonian, uh, as James Madison said in Federalist 10 about the mischiefs of faction, so I'm going to paraphrase and talk about the mischiefs of polarization, it's best to control its effects if we can't eliminate it. And I think there are lots of possible political reforms that can uh, help us to essentially mitigate the negative effects and by not letting uh, polarization get in the way of uh, governance. Uh, most importantly is cloture reform, uh, the United States Senate, uh, the idea that we need such an inflated supermajority in the U.S. Senate to get things done uh, is probably not justifiable under the best of circumstances, uh, but in an environment uh, in which 40 senators uh, can block a very strong majority, 
uh, is something we need to look at. Uh, and we need to look at it both when the Republicans are in control and when the Democrats are in control. It turns out that many uh, cloture reformers uh, switch sides after elections. Uh, but this is something we need to consider uh, both times. Uh, I actually computed this once for my undergraduate class. Uh, because the Senate is so malapportioned, because every state, regardless of population, gets two senators, you can actually calculate the minimal number of people, uh, constituents, who can block legislation uh, in the U.S. Senate. So if you take the 40 senators from the 20 smallest states, they account for 11% of the population. So essentially 11% of the population can block uh, legislation in the U.S. Senate. Another issue that I've wrote, written on uh, extensively is the confirmation process. And it's related to cloture reform and the filibuster. Uh, we have to have mechanisms to staff our government effectively uh, without the types of uh, uh, delays and tactics which make public service uh, unattractive to those uh, that are willing to serve. Polarization in combination uh, with the filibuster and other arcane rules in the Senate uh, have made uh, the confirmation process uh, an absolute mess. So since I'm an optimist and I want to have some reform agenda, let's stress these uh, and maybe forget about gerrymandering for a little bit. Uh, so thank you. Yes. Uh, Yeah, uh, it's, a very, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, the question was, you know, what's my explanation for the low levels of polarization between the 1930s and the 1960s? Well, obviously I'm going to say that the distribution of income uh, was quite different. Uh, one, if, actually, I don't have these very well organized to this, this point, but let me come back here. So this is the... One second. This is the measure of top income shares. One thing that the Great Depression World War II did very well, that perhaps the Great Recession and the financial crisis didn't do, was it essentially hit the top of the income distribution extremely, extremely hard. Um, and uh, basically, and there was a massive, as we all know, there was a massive landslide for the Democratic Party in the 1930s. So in a period of time, in which there was a lot of political support uh, for building a welfare state and building up the labor unions and to building the institutions that could uh, maintain kind of low levels of income inequality, uh, they were in fact they were in fact built up during a particularly salient window when they could be. Uh, but as we know, over time, uh, some of those institutions eroded. Uh, the, the world economy changed in ways which made these institutions seem inefficient, and there were reforms, deregulation, and so forth. Uh, so it's really the combination of the major shocks coming out of the World War II and the Great, uh, and the Great Depression, along with the economic institutions uh, that, were part of the new, that were part of the New Deal. 
and, and, and I, I don't want to minimize this uh, effect, the fact that race was a cross-party, cross-cutting issue. You had racial conservatives in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And so one of the things that held polarization down was this uh, cross-party coalition uh, on race and civil rights. Oh yeah, so for this one, so the polarization index, I showed you earlier what it would do. So we know what polarization does, it just keeps skyrocketing. Uh, the top 1% income share, I didn't update this because this comes from the book that we published, and this was the latest data when we published it, but the new data is available. It continues, the top 1% income share continues, continues to go up. If anything, it got worse, uh, considerably worse in the 2000s. Uh, it's about the level, I think, I believe, and I'm just recalling from memory, it's about the levels of 1913-1914. That's a very good question. So I, I want to be optimistic, and I, so I hope nobody would a a answer that question. Um, one of the difficult things about cultural reform is that... Um, it's actually perhaps uh, the extremists who might want it. I mean, the people that are the people that uh, are grieved now about cloture are progressive Democrats in the Senate who are appalled by the notion that they had to negotiate with Scott Brown on every single piece of legislation. Um, I think James Carville once said that uh, you know if he died, he wanted to come back as the bond market. I think if I died, I want to come back as Scott Brown. Uh, <laughs> Scott Brown is the single most important figure in American politics over the past six months. But it's progressive Democrats who are frustrated by it. It was conservative Republicans who were really frustrated by it before. It's actually, the perversely, it's whenever there are talks about cloture reform that the moderates close rank and say, it's us that are being protected, right? It's the Scott Browns and the Max Bacchuses who like cloture because it puts them in a position that they wouldn't otherwise be in. We saw this uh, several years ago when there were discussions about the nuclear option on Supreme Court nominations. Uh, it would have been ugly, but the Republicans, the conservative Republicans were really, were ready to go nuclear and just say, we've changed the rules, no filibuster, you can't fil filibuster the Supreme Court justices. It was 12 moderates, six Republicans and six Democrats who said, oh no, no, calm down. We'll come together and work together to deal so that we can get some people confirmed, but don't change the rules because it's the moderates who like the rule. So there's a perversity about cloture reform, is that it's really not the extremists. They might tolerate it because you know, they can get what they want some of the time, but the moderates really like the protection that it gives them. I, well, actually, as a technical, as a technical matter, uh, a, willing, a willing majority in the Senate can change the Senate rules. Uh, people believe that a, a motion to change the filibuster can be filibustered, uh, but many legal uh, constitutional scholars doubt that that's true. So a concentrated, determined majority who's willing to deal with the, uh, the fireworks that would ensue could do it if, if they were provoked. Uh, in fact, they were very close to eliminating the filibuster uh, in the 1960s to get civil, to get civil rights passed. 
So a determined majority could do it. They just have to be determined. They actually don't need the other side uh, to agree with them, but they have to deal with the consequences of a, a Senate that will be broken in the short run for a long time. Uh, so again, that's not probably a completely satisfactory answer. But if the Democrats right now want to kill the filibuster and they were determined to do it, they could do it, but Max Baucus wouldn't let them do it. That's, that's the issue. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one of the things uh, it's probably maybe easier to see here in terms of the polarization itself. Um, the uptick uh, does start in the late late 19, mid to late 1970s. So things are kind of changing before Reagan. Uh, it's clear that you know he gave impetus uh, to polarization. If for no other reason than essentially proving that uh, conservatism uh, was electorally viable, that they could win elections. I mean, there clearly were extremely conservative Republicans in the 1960s, like Barry Goldwater, but they couldn't dominate the party because nobody believed that strong conservatives could get elected. So one of the things Reagan obviously did was show that that, that, that wasn't true. Uh, he had a platform that was appealing to kind of a new uh, class of voters essentially the people whose incomes uh, began to rise as income inequality began to rise, uh, and he attracted a lot of those voters. His policies also obviously played some role. You, uh, you mentioned the Fairness Doctrine, I'll come back to that in a second, but people have, uh, have talked about things like uh, ending the, uh, the airport controller, airline controllers union, uh, terminating that union and its effect on unionization, which had effects on uh, policy and income inequality. Uh, but I've kind of resisted stories that focus too heavily on particular individuals because it is a long-term time trend. Lots of things happened before Reagan came to office. Lots of things happened after. Some of them could be lingering effects of Reaganism. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to say. Um, on the media and the fairness doctrine, the fairness doctrine ended in the 1980s. So the media changed. Um, uh, considerably, especially talk radio. But again, it's kind of too late to explain the turning point. It, it could contribute uh, to the magnitudes. Uh, but also, it could be that polarization influenced the way that media and talk radio behaved after the Fairness Doctrine uh, was eliminated. Uh, as my colleague Marcus Pryor has pointed out, probably the more important source, media source of polarization, is just essentially the breakdown of the, uh, the monopoly, essentially, of the three broadcast networks over news. The fact that there are so many news sources now, whether it's uh, on cable, the internet, or whatever, that has created a situation where people can choose uh, their own news outlets 
uh, and their worldviews begin to kind of reflect uh, Fox if they watch Fox, MSNBC if they watch MSNBC. And that's clearly had uh, some contributing uh, effects. Um, uh, if we could go back to California for a second, uh, that was an that was an innovate that was an innovation uh, that was essentially pioneered in California and many Western states. Um, there's very little evidence that term limits uh, will reduce will reduce polarization. Uh, in fact, one might even believe that it makes uh, uh, polarization worse, uh, in the sense that it deprives legislators of a long time horizon, so they can essentially say. You know, I can stand here, take these very strong stands, uh, move up to the, become popular, famous, and move up to the next office uh, without having to deal deal with longer term consequences. So I think the uh, experience from California and other term limit states has just been that they, they haven't worked. They've weakened governance in those states without having any any effects on polarization or other uh, mechanisms of accountability. Um, yeah, well, there's a couple of easy cuts is that while it may be 5% of the population, it's probably closer to 12 or 13% of the electorate. So once you start taking into account of the, the known uh, differences across income groups and voter participation, turnout, engagement, knowledge, it becomes a much, that, that group becomes much more salient. I think I will take the Republicans to, while I may not agree with them, I'll take their word on the fact that they are ideologically opposed to increasing taxes on anyone. I think they fear, uh, in part because parts of their coalition, like the Club for Growth and others, are just purely, purely anti-tax. And a tax increase on any individual violates a, a, an ideological commitment that Republicans have believed that they've made uh, to, their vote, to their voters. Uh, but, you know, that said, as I've pointed out, I think in several slides, high-income voters are an important constituency for the Republican Party, uh, and, and that also shapes uh, the reasons why they're, they're hesitant to go along with any, uh, uh, any extension of the middle-class Bush tax cuts if they don't also include uh, extending the high-income Bush tax cuts. Um, I don't have good. I don't have good evidence on that point. One of the things that tends to happen across 
we know that happens across age cohorts is that there are big partisan shifts over time in, in young voters. So as we know now, we've seen a lot on TV that, that younger voters tend to be much more democratic uh, than older voters. Uh, in the 1980s, younger voters were more Republican than older voters. Uh, so these things come in cycles. Uh, I haven't seen good evidence about within age cohorts whether they're more or less polarized uh, than, than, other, than other groups. Um, one of the things about, you know, you mentioned the kind of World War II type generation. Um, one of the things that's true in these data is that most of the polarization in these measures for the House and Senate come about not because people have gotten more, individual members have gotten more extreme uh, over the course of their careers. It's that every new cohort of legislators is more extreme than the previous cohort. Uh, so some, this has led some people, although I'm not sure I'm in agreement, this has led some people to think, well, it's a generational phenomenon, uh, that the World War II generation were much more moderate politically, uh, whereas the Vietnam War generation, much more polarized. Uh, there, there's some face validity to that, but I haven't seen any conclusive evidence that that's an important factor. Um, to some extent, uh, when I, I guess when I say that campaign finance um, doesn't matter very much is that the trends in campaign finance can explain the polarization trends. Uh, there have been big money in American politics uh, for a very long time, even during the period in time which there was very little polarization. Uh, on very, there's interesting data on the very richest contributors. Uh, the, you know, in, in our book, we look at the contributions of billionaires, essentially. Uh, actually, it's not the case that the very, very richest are overwhelmingly Republicans. If you look at very, very wealthy people, people to some extent who I might even argue are somewhat insulated from the kind of redistributive politics that kind of small business owners like Joe the Plumber are animated about, uh, they, tend to give, they tend to give money uh, to Democrat, their Democratic liberal billionaires and their Republican conservative billionaires. The differences uh, on income are not, are not that great. The one area where I would say there's a difference is that I think the, the highest income, wealthiest contributors to the Democratic Party care less about issues of economic redistribution and welfare and the safety net. Uh, they're primarily contributing because of their concerns about the environment or foreign policy or other issues. So you have uh, very wealthy Democratic contributors who are contributing on these other set of issues and a very large set of Republican contributors who are contributing basically to support particular economic policies. So there is an asymmetry. It's not that the Republicans are getting more money from billionaires than Democrats, but there is an asymmetry in the emphases uh, of those contributions.
Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, so the question, the question is about how uh, changing over time of the top marginal tax rate uh, relates to polarization. Um, I don't have the plot with me, uh, and I'd be loath to make any kind of strong causal claims, but clearly periods of very high marginal tax rates, such as those uh, post the 1940s uh, through the 1970s, uh, came about during periods of both lower income inequality and lower polarization. Uh, and that is uh, marginal tax rates began to decline uh, in the 1980s because of the Reagan tax cuts or tax reform. Uh, there, there was a, a, an increase in both polarization and income inequality at the same time. Uh, however, uh, the Clinton era tax increases uh, tended not to have a big impact either on income inequality or on political polarization. Uh, and those were, those were quite large uh, tax increases. So, so there's some rough correlation, but it's hard to get at the causal relationships between, between polarization and policy and income inequality uh, to kind of sort out a real causal story. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the question is about uh, not about gerrymandering, but about reapportionment, which is the shift of seats from one state to another uh, following the decennial census, and the question about whether or not we had grown uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, as the population grew, whether that would have an effect. So let me, those are kind of two different questions, so let me answer both of them quickly. Um, as the question alluded to, there is an effect on polarization caused by the seat shift following decennial reapportionments, for exactly the reason the, uh, the questioner said. You take seats out of the more moderate regions of the country, the Northeast, uh, and move it to the more polarized regions of the country, California, the Southwest, Texas, Florida, uh, the, the traditional uh, 11 former Confederate states, that's going to increase, that's going to increase uh, polarization. But the effect is actually fairly small. It, it, it increases it. I can measure it. I have measured it. It's in the book. Uh, but it's not, it's not a major impact. Uh, the question about whether if we had a larger House of Representatives, we'd have larger polarization, uh, basically meaning that you would have basically smaller districts and each member would be representing fewer voters. The standard story, which I'm, I'm not entirely uh, convinced of because I don't think that electoral security leads to extremism, would be by having smaller districts that almost naturally become more concentrated in, in a partisan sense. So say we, di we divided uh, Trenton from Princeton, it's much more likely that you're going to get a much more liberal representative representing Trenton than you would you know, if they're representing both Trenton and Princeton. 
So that's the, that, you know, if that's the effect, reducing, increasing the size of the house, reducing the size of districts would actually increase polarization. Uh, but if the story is about voters being able to monitor their representatives more closely and keep them in line in smaller districts, then it might reduce it. It's just a question we don't know the answer to. Um, uh, if, you ask, if you ask former members of Congress, and as, a, as an associate dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, I've encountered a few of them, uh, they, will, they will say they believe it's, they believe it's a factor, uh, that if they, you know, those who served over long periods of time can remember when they had their families there, uh, and they would be, and uh, their children would all be in the same little leagues and going to the same schools, uh, and that they would have opportunities to kind of interact outside the halls of Congress. Um, but that because things have changed, there's greater expectation that members will spend more time uh, in their districts. It's also very expensive to live in Washington, uh, so many of them choose, choose not to. They do spend less time there, uh, and that could, that, could have an, that could have an effect. Um, my own gut instinct is that that effect is kind of uh, overstated. Uh, I think there are kind of subs really important substantive differences between the parties that they're not going to settle on the Little League diamond. Uh, they're not going to settle in the PTA meeting. Uh, but, you know, if you ask them, they'll, they'll say it's a factor. 